Good morning. In a moment, I will ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, Our passage today actually consists of two different pieces of Scripture. The first is uh, from Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 8, through chapter 6, verse 6. Uh, If you choose to follow along in the translation that we're using for the sermon series, you can refer to the screen uh, behind me. If you prefer to follow along in your pew Bible, you can find that on page 66. The second reading is from Matthew 6, verse 19 through verse 24, and that can be found on page 960 in your pew Bible. So please stand for the reading of God's word. This is from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting at verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer who eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, All his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of, of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, it is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? 
And the last section is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is this lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole, world, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. Then be seated as the children make their way downstairs for children's worship. Uh, you can make your way back to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 8 this morning. And we're going to look at a section that goes all the way through chapter 6, verse 6. If you're just joining us this morning, uh, we have been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes for several weeks, uh, following the preacher, who was probably the ancient King Solomon, uh, as he takes an honest look at life in a fallen world, life in a world that doesn't work the way that it should, the way that it's supposed to. And he's looking in that world for lasting gain and significance, for some meaningful way to spend whatever time he has on this earth. And for most of his study, he has been setting apart the question of God and just looking at how we can experience and, and find gain relative to, to what we see, what we do, what we experience in our own lives here under the sun, as he puts it, setting aside God for the moment. Um, and for most of pretty much everything, as he's looked at it, uh, he, find, he describes his findings as vapor, as vanity. You see this word coming up time and time throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, 32 times if I remember correctly. Vanity, meaningless, vapor, smoke. It, it's nothing that you can take hold of and understand. It's nothing that sticks around long enough to make any difference. It's fleeting, it's fruitless, and that is the gain that this world offers apart from God, whether we're looking for it in human activity and achievement, whether we're looking for it in human wisdom, uh, in time, in justice, in our relationships, even in religion, when we hijack relating with God in order to you know, see if we can get something out of it for ourselves. In chapter 2, when the preacher turned his examination to, to human activity, to what we do, uh, he explored personally whether money and wealth and possessions could satisfy him. He gave himself to all sorts of delights and, and so on. And this was his conclusion in chapter 2, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. But as we come to chapter 5, he's now going to turn his attention one more time to the question of wealth, of money, and possessions. 
This time, instead of sharing from his own personal experience, he's going to share his observations as he looks out on the world and sees how other people are interacting with money. What kind of gain are they finding? And the prospect isn't much better. Uh, Like a dishonest boss who keeps promising you a raise but never delivers, uh, so money leaves us dreadfully unsatisfied in life. What we have in these verses really is a tale of two masters, uh, money and God. And as Jesus said, you can only serve one of them. You can only serve one of them. Or as the old adage goes, money makes a good servant, but a terrible master. We're going to see that on display this morning. And what we need to remember from this passage is that the ability to enjoy our possessions, to accept our lot, our situation in life, and to rejoice in our work amid a fallen world filled with disappointment, that ability is nothing less than the gift of God and His grace. So let's pray together as we look at Ecclesiastes 5. Lord, we are grateful to be gathered to make much of you and to open your word. And Lord, the subject that you've placed before us in this book uh, is something that we cannot escape. It's something we live with day in and day out and something that can be such a source of joy for some and absolute misery for others. So God, we pray for your perspective this morning. We pray that you would help us think about our possessions, about whatever wealth we have, about our money, Uh, according to your perspective, according to your grace, by your spirit. And we pray, God, that if our hearts are not right in the way we think about these things, that your spirit would change us this morning according to the grace of the gospel that we have in Christ. So we pray that you'd meet us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Our passage um, actually begins with a smaller section that's really only partly related to the bigger theme of money or wealth, verses uh, 8 and 9 in chapter 5. Some people understand these verses as kind of an expansion of 1 through 7 in the discussion of God and authority we looked at last week, and so here's human authority. Others attach it to what we're going to spend most of our time looking at, Uh, money and and the dissatisfaction of money, recognizing that it's that love of money that often moves people to corruption. But whether you look back or look forward, these verses are another commentary on how common injustice is in this fallen world, not unlike the end of chapter 3. So uh, chapter 5, verse 8 reads, If you see in a province... uh, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high officials watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So Solomon is reminding us again that life does not always work the way that it's supposed to in this world. Sin has messed things up. Those who are vulnerable and need help are often preyed upon by those who have power. And the people who we trust to do something about that, our our officials, our governments, and so on, so often are either indifferent or powerless or perhaps even guilty themselves. It's not right 
But Solomon says it's not uncommon either. Don't be surprised when you see it. You know, we, we look at every single headline, we think there's something new happening when we see the kind of injustice we see. It's as old as the sun. Sadly, it's par for the course in a fallen world where sinners lead other sinners. It's hard to tell whether the precise problem he's talking about in verse 8 is the endless bureaucracy. How do you say that word? Bureaucracy? Is that it? Endless bureaucracy. You know, there's, there's injustice happening, but nobody can do anything about it because one official's here and he's got another one over here and he's got to go to. And then there's higher ones still over there and so nothing gets done. Is, is that what he's lamenting? Or is it just good old corruption? One official is more interested in watching the back of his other officials, and so on, than actually dealing with what they're supposed to be doing. Hard to tell, but either way, uh, it's not right, but it's not uncommon. Now, verse 9 is actually one of the hardest verses in this book to understand. Hebrew is very vague. And, And if you compare a couple different English translations, you'll see that because they say quite different things at times. It could be saying that if you think those officials are bad... You know, just look at the king. You think exploitation happens among the lowers in the government, just look at the top. You know, that's the, how the NIV understands it, translating it. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. And so the corruption just goes all the way up. It could also be providing a contrast, though, uh, which is how I think is more likely. So, whereas bad leaders do exist and take advantage of their people, there's much gain in a king, in a leader who's committed to cultivated fields, or in other words, the well-being of his people who depend on the land. So, it could be saying that. Perhaps we have a portrait of two kinds of masters here. So, the corrupt bureaucracy or the compassionate king. Perhaps we have a, a portrait of a single unjust system. Either way, we see that injustice happens in this world, and we see that there are bad leaders who are behind it sometimes. But as bad as those leaders are, and at the damage that they can do to people, it can be matched blow for blow by the self-destructive allegiance that we can have when we treat money as our master. And that's the next subject that Solomon turns to that takes up the bulk of this passage He states the principle very plainly in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And you can't help but wonder if the Apostle Paul had been reading Ecclesiastes in his morning devotions when he says in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But note what's being criticized here. In both places, Paul and Ecclesiastes. Not money per se, but the love of money. Again, money itself is a great servant. It's a terrible master. And in one way or another, when we treat it as master, it will betray us. And the preacher illustrates that kind of betrayal in two ways, uh, in verses 11 and 12. The first is what I call the entourage effect, in verse 11. The more money you have, the more people want in. 
When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? As Doug Wilson paraphrases, an increase in goods brings with it an increase in accountants, lawyers, staff, managers, and scads of consultants with that hungry look in their eye. You, know, you think of the, the feeling that you get at a church potluck when you've slaved over your favorite dish and you bring it to that potluck and you're waiting in line and then you get to it and it's gone. And you know what I'm talking about. That's this effect, you know. You, you do all of this work and at the end of the day, the only satisfaction you get out of it is to look at it. You never get to taste it. That's one of the ways money betrays us. The second illustration he gives is in verse 12, and I call this the thanksgiving effect. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. This is what uh, preacher Phil Riken calls insomnia by, indig- insomnia by indigestion. So, unlike the man back in chapter 2, who was deprived of sleep because he was worrying so much and toiling so hard, this person, uh, here the picture is a restlessness that comes from gorging oneself on too much rich food. You thought you were purchasing a good time in a lavish celebration with your money. Instead, you actually paid for dyspepsia and a lack of sleep. You know, you should have bought some Tums instead of that second dessert. That's the idea. Those who work long days with their hands in labor-intensive jobs don't tend to have that problem. But, this, but Solomon, uh, he gets even more penetrating. So he's illustrated a couple of ways how money's going to betray us, but now, really, he takes the gloves off and, and he takes a deeper, more penetrating look at just how messed up things can get when we treat money like God. In verses 13 to 17, and in the first six verses of chapter 6, he's going to point out what he describes as three grievous evils, uh, a phrase that he uses only in this book right here in our passage. Three grievous evils about serving Money, three things that are sickeningly wrong when you stop and think about them, that turn the stomach and, and remind you how messed up things are. And then in, in 5, 18 through 20, he's going to contrast those three evils with one refreshing good. So that's what we're going to look at. The first two grievous or sickening evils that he sees are described in verses 13 to 17. In chapter 5, and they deal with what happens when we trust in money, but then lose it. Look at verse 13 with me. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. Again, we see the idea of money betraying us in the forefront here. 
He kept his riches to his hurt. Now, many of us think that our hurts and our pains would go away if we just had a little bit more money. But this individual, whoever he is, was betrayed by the money that he kept, thinking in it that he had security, a safety net, protection, well-being. And then he lost those riches in what the preacher calls a bad venture, some misfortune. It doesn't look like he lost them because he squandered them or, or he was foolish, but rather something along the lines of making an investment that then goes south, something too many of us experience today. You spend your whole life putting away your nest egg, and then the house that you spent it all on goes to the bank in foreclosure. You, you take all your savings and all of your capital and you sink it into this exciting new business idea only to lose the shirt off your back when the competition outmaneuvers you. But what is particularly grievous about this evil of losing riches here on a bad venture is not just losing them, but the fact that this man has a son and now he has no inheritance left for him. I mean, think of the tragedy of that. You work all your life in hopes of providing something for your children. You know, and then in the blink of an eye, it's gone. Some of you know exactly what Solomon's talking about because you've lived that experience of watching it go away and the pain of that and just the sense of failure as a parent that we sometimes feel like we've let our children down. How, how can we pay for the wedding? How can, how can we do college? It's a grievous evil. It's something that is not right in this world. The second grievous evil. So the first one is losing money and therefore having nothing to pass on to the children. The second grievous evil that Solomon observes is that this man has gained absolutely nothing for all of his life of toil. He can't take any of it with him when he dies. He spends all of his life toiling for the wind, he puts it. There's a great metaphor for you. Working to try and gather wind. Where's that going to get you? you know, slaving in service of money. The picture in verse 17 is just dreadful. Here's a man who comes home from work hours after the sun has set drops his keys on the counter, rifles through the fridge for something to reheat so that he can eat while his wife and children are already asleep. And he sits there in darkness, eating his food, grumbling, his heart just vexed over all of the financial woes that he faces, the hopelessness of it all, the anger over the situation boiling up, the weariness of his body, as he wears it out, toiling for the wind. It's an ugly picture. Yet for all his toil, here's the worst part. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil. That is a grievous, sickening evil. This reality... And we take nothing with us. I mean, it's a nice uh, little cliche. But this reality was burned into my soul when we lived in Wheaton. 
One of the elderly gentlemen in our church was a good friend, and I visited him regularly. Uh, as his health declined, and he had to be moved into a full-time, full-care nursing home, uh, several of us went through his stuff in his apartment, cleaning it out, giving away things at his request. And when we were done, I gathered all uh, that remained to bring it to Don and put it in a shoebox. A pair of glasses, a Bible, and some pictures. All he had left to claim as his own in his life. And it fit in a shoebox. Our wealth, our money, our possessions, if we look to those as our hope, as our significance and our lasting gain, they will disappoint. Because you can't take any of it with you. As uh, one commentator summarizes, the rich man's money has spoiled his life twice over, first in the getting and then in the losing. Two grievous evils. Now, is Solomon saying that working hard or saving money is unwise? Absolutely not. Is he saying that investments are a bad idea? Absolutely not. But he is saying that if you put your hope and satisfaction in those things, then you need to prepare to be disappointed. But money does not only disappoint us when we lose it, it also fails to satisfy even when we have lots of it. And that's the third grievous evil that Solomon observes, this time in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Go ahead and look at those verses with me. There is an evil I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that, is, that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Again, it's a very troubling portrait, but one that's all too familiar. And this is the picture of the one who has all the wealth, has all the money, all the toys, the possessions, all the honor, but no ability to actually enjoy them. Because that ability is expressly a gift from God. Doug Wilson comments, We're all familiar with the man who has everything. God frequently gives men many external blessings without giving them the spiritual taste buds to enjoy what they have. This is a sore affliction from the Lord. If we understand the point here, we metaphorically see a man without any taste buds who can afford the finest restaurants. 
the finest chef in the world, can only fix him gray, cold oatmeal. It's a terrible picture. But that's the picture of wealth when we try and enjoy it apart from God. Not realizing that he is the keeper and the giver of joy. So it is that the richest people are often sometimes the most miserable. So unhappy and unfortunate is this prospect that the preacher suggests a stillborn child is better off than the rich who have a full life, all the money, all the children, all the years, but who enjoy no good in it, departing this world unnoticed, unlamented, and unfulfilled. Now, as a father of two miscarried children, this picture that Solomon uses here strikes uncomfortably close to home. There are, you know, there's no deeper sadness in my heart and in Carissa's heart than losing those two children. It's hard to compare it to anything. And yet, for all of that sadness, all of that reminder of how broken this world is, Solomon suggests that even worse is someone who trusts in money as their God, has lots of it, but finds no good in it. That's an even worse and more frustrating prospect. It's a powerful picture. So what do we do? You know, if, if looking to money and possessions will ultimately betray us and disappoint us, how do we think about our jobs? It's not like you can just stop using money in your everyday interaction. How do we think about our life situations, our money, our possessions, or lack thereof? The solution is not to get rid of money. Solomon is not making a virtue out of poverty here. And again, the problem's not money, but it's treating money like God. Treating it as our master. And again, no one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, what does it look like to serve God with respect to our money? That's the question. How does serving God affect the way that we think about and handle our money, our possessions? Well, in contrast to the three grievous evils that we've seen, Solomon now holds up one refreshing good in verses 18 to 20. 518 to 20. Reminding us that the ability to enjoy our possessions, to accept our lot and rejoice in our work amid This fallen world is nothing less than the gift of God. So look again with me at verse 18 in chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot." Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God 
keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What does it look like to serve God with respect to our money? Well, first we need a healthy theology of work. We need a healthy theology of work. This is something that Solomon reminds us again in verse 18. Something he's touched on three times already in the book. You should, if you've been with us, verse 18 should sound very familiar to you. We need to remember that work was part of God's good design for creation before the fall. Before Adam and Eve sinned and uh, disobeyed God and sin entered the world and messed everything up. God placed Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. Work was part of what we were made for. And that work, whatever shape it takes, was designed to be an act of worship to God. Serving money instead of God spoils our work. It spoils our work. We become distracted at the office with what we're going to get out of this activity, or or frustrated that we're not getting enough. So work becomes the bitter means to the end of whatever it is we want to do with our money. But when we serve God, when our trust is in Him, when He is our treasure, not just what He gives us, but Himself, to know and be known by the God of the universe, to be rescued from our sin, through His Son, when God is our treasure, then our work can be joyful because whether we spend our time changing diapers or crunching numbers or trading stocks or designing software or working in an assembly line or running scientific diagnostic tests or whatever it is, when we do it unto the Lord in honor to Him, in trust in Him, to make much of Him, that work is an act of worship. Our work isn't just spiritual when we're doing things at church. Our work is spiritual whenever we make much of God with the work of our hands. And when our work is worship, there's much joy in it. Because there's much joy in worshiping God. So we need a healthy theology of work. that It's not just what we get out of it, the paycheck, but it's the opportunity to honor God with the work of our hands. Second, we need a healthy theology of wealth. A healthy theology of wealth. And verse 19 gives us several clues of what that looks like. Now, of course, there are lots of places in the Bible that help us understand God's vision for work and for wealth. And we're not going to exhaust that this morning. But the goal is to hear what Ecclesiastes 5 has to say on the subject. And uh, one of the first things we see in verse 19, again, is that money itself is not the problem. Because whatever money we have comes from God's hand. He is the giver of wealth and possessions. And while all of us are to rejoice in our work, God in his providence does give particular wealth and possessions to some. Now, we always think it's the, the guy over here who makes a little bit more than us. That's, that's the one, forgetting the fact that you know, compared to the majority of humans on this planet, every single one in this room is very wealthy. But we need to understand, how do we think about whatever wealth we have? Big or small, 
as we compare it to one another? How do we think about it if we're to serve God and not serve money? The key here in this passage is noticing the difference between verse 19 and chapter 6, verse 2. I want you to take a look at those two verses again. Notice that in both places, God is the giver of wealth and possessions. He is the one from whom all blessings flow. The difference is that those in chapter 5, he gives power to enjoy them, to eat of them, but withholds that power from those who serve money in chapter 6. So, the only difference between having money and enjoying it, and having money with no satisfaction in life, is the gift of God, His grace. There's nothing we can do to earn the right to enjoy our wealth. It is a gift of God's grace. It's a gift He gives to His people, and I think that the essence of that gift is a satisfaction in God Himself. A satisfaction in God Himself. Again, you can only have one supreme treasure in your life. You can only serve one master. And if our hearts are satisfied and at rest and completely delighted in God, then we're free to do three specific things according to verse 19. Three parts to this gift God gives. To enjoy our possessions, to accept our lot, and to rejoice in our work. If whatever wealth and possessions we have are a gift from God, then it's fitting that we should, in some measure, enjoy God's gift. As we've said before, when you give your child a gift for their birthday, you want them to take it out of the box and play with it. You want them to take joy in that gift. When you cook your loved one a meal, you want them to eat it and enjoy it. So, God wants us to enjoy His gift. But what enables us to enjoy that gift without worshipping the gift, without turning it into God, is a deep-seated delight and satisfaction in God Himself. If I'm more interested in the gift, then I'm going to turn from God and I'm going to turn to the gift. If I'm completely satisfied in God, I can actually find some joy in the gift. Otherwise, when I treat it like God, it's going to disappoint. Only in knowing and being known by God the Father, through His Son, Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, are we able to enjoy things that will someday disappear and disappoint. Because our ultimate delight is in God and not in stuff. So, it's fitting that we enjoy His gift. But it's also fitting that we accept our lot. That's the second part in in verse 19. The second ability God gives us. And I dare say, probably the single most difficult thing in life. To accept our lot. And what he means by that is to recognize that God is the one who has apportioned to us our situation in life, our, our friendships, our possessions, our circumstances, our prospects. Everything that we have right now and everything that we look forward to 
is according to God's perfect plan to make much of his name through his rescued people. God gives us our portion and he gives us the gift to accept it. He's talking about contentment here, to be content in our situation. And a lack of contentment is one of the chief triggers for turning money into God, for serving money as master, when I'm not content with my situation. And I say that because I know it from experience. Something I struggle with daily, if not multiple times a day, to be content in the situation. Uh, one, I, I wrestle with God to be satisfied in Him and not in stuff. Um, I very often want more than I have, uh, more than I, I want to do more than I can afford for my kids, for my family, and so on. It's one of the most difficult things for me personally, is what Solomon's talking about right here. And I have more than a hunch that I'm not alone. Only by God's grace is contentment possible. Now, sometimes that means making the hard decision and choosing not to purchase something or not to do something because I can't afford it. Sometimes that means swallowing our pride and asking for help because we need help. But it always means trusting God, delighting in God, being satisfied in God. Only when Christ himself is our portion and our cup is contentment possible. Contentment doesn't mean not working hard. It's not the same thing as laziness. You know, I'm, I'm content with my situation, so I'm just going to sit back and play video games for the next three years. It's not laziness. It's resting in God, trusting him, whatever the situation it doesn't mean that we don't work hard. It doesn't mean that we don't pray hard. It doesn't mean that we don't set goals and pursue them. It does mean that we do all those things without envying our neighbor, without jealousy or bitterness, without you know, seeking to make much of self, but rather with humility, with satisfaction, and with surrender to God and his plan. Which, by the way, frees us to enjoy whatever we have, but also to hold loosely to it, as we looked at back in chapter 2. If, if God is our portion, then we're okay losing our stuff, because we still have God, and you can't take him away. So, so we, we are free not only to enjoy what we have, but to give generously and sacrificially of it. Um, as we saw a few months back in, in Philippians 4, one of the best ways to avoid treating money like God when you have lots of it is to give a lot of it away, to give generously, sacrificially, to give so that it affects your lifestyle. And this contentment brings us full circle to the third aspect of God's gift in verse 19. So we have the ability to enjoy what we have, the ability to accept our lot, and then third, the ability to rejoice in our work. If our hearts are satisfied in God and content with our lot, then the joy of work can be restored because it's not just about what we get out of it. It's about honoring God, enjoying Him. 
The joy is not just the paycheck, but the work itself. In fact, joy becomes a marker of our lives. If you look at verse 20, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Some uh, think that Solomon is suggesting here just to, you know, uh, let the little joys in life take the edge off the sea of misery that describes your daily activity. You know, so he's going to have the little joys in life, and that's what's going to protect him from being miserable all his days. You know, like eating chocolate at a funeral or something like that. The emphasis here is on God, not on the stuff that, but God who gives the stuff. God who keeps his people occupied with joy in their hearts. Because it's a joy not in stuff, but in God. His gift is what makes all the difference. So what does it look like to serve God with respect to our money without treating money like God? We need a healthy theology of work, that it's a good thing in and of itself, in a way to honor God. We need a healthy theology of wealth, that whatever we have is from God's hand, and that the ability to enjoy it, to accept our lot and rejoice in our work, is a gift from Him alone. And if you look to the stuff, you'll be sorely disappointed. We need a satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Because everything in God's gift in this passage turns on being satisfied in God, on delighting in Him alone. The greatest gain in this world is not wealth. It is, as Paul puts it, godliness with contentment. There is much gain in godliness with contentment. Paul continues in 1 Timothy, echoing our passage. For we brought nothing into the world... And we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some people have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. Money, if you serve it as your master, will let you down. It will betray you. It may even lead you to turn your back on God. But there is much gain in godliness with contentment, with being satisfied in Jesus so that we can be satisfied whatever our lot in life. And this contentment only comes when we know Jesus Christ. When our deepest satisfactions, the ability to know and relate to the God we were designed by and made for, when that ability is restored, our sin and rebellion is dealt with, and and we are reunited with God in a relationship that alone can satisfy us, not just in the few days of our life, but for all eternity. It's only through Christ And that is what this meal that stands before us reminds us. This morning we are going to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper. This is a meal that Jesus gave us to be a constant reminder of his ultimate gift on the cross. 
And so the bread that we're about to eat points us to the body of Christ that was broken for us. The cup that we're about to drink points us to his blood, which was shed for our sins. For our sins. Every greedy, selfish thought in our heart, every jealous glance at what someone else has, every idolatrous offering that we've laid at the foot of mammon, money, Jesus took upon himself to pay the penalty we owed in our betrayal of God to deal with it completely, to exhaust God's holy anger against our sin and to bring cleansing and forgiveness and wholeness to his people, even though they're sinners. That's the message of this table. Jesus took for his portion the cup of God's wrath that we might be able to take for our portion eternal life in God's presence in the new heavens and new earth. And so as we take the bread and the cup this morning, I invite you, if Jesus is your hope, if he is the one in whom you've placed your faith and you are trusting in him, even if you're messing up and getting it wrong and you struggle daily with worshiping money like I do, that's what this table's for. It's the grace of God to remind us of the cross. So if Christ is your hope, I invite you to rejoice in this table with humble hearts. If you're not a Christian and you're not sure what that means, um, you're exploring the faith, but you, you haven't really trusted in Christ, then I ask that you just let the elements go by you this morning. And instead of taking the sign, take hold of Jesus by faith and taste the life and the satisfaction that he alone can give. So I'm going to pray for us as the ushers come forward, and we're going to rejoice in God's grace displayed in this table. Lord, what a sweet gift your grace is. Lord, we recognize that you risked a lot by allowing us to taste money and that our selfish hearts couldn't bear it. We turned against you. We turned to money. We turned to our own security, our own sense of control, our own lust for more. And then sometimes, Lord, we, we sit there just frustrated because we just want to make ends meet. We just want the simplest things in life. And even that seems hard and impossible. And we're disappointed. Lord, remind us this morning. Remind us in this table that you alone can satisfy. That you are the giver of good gifts and that you provide for your people. Remind us that we're not alone. This table reminds us that we are part of a family, part of a community, that we're not expected to make our way through life by ourselves, but that we can depend on one another and share with one another. Remind us of the cross, of our satisfaction in Jesus, and be glorified as we celebrate that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.